Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. We are in our first week of Lent, our first Sunday, looking at this beautiful pathway that we engage in heading towards Easter, these 40 days where we stop and reflect. And we can't help but feel the weight of what we're engaging in this time. The world is in chaos. What is happening in the Ukraine is constantly brought before our eyes, videos, pictures, newsreels, and it's really hard to sit with this. The anticipation of what will come next. Yes, we've been praying, but there's a sense of grief and fear as we look on Not only that, if you think about what's happening in Australia, we have the floods happening in Queensland and New South Wales. Oh, and also don't forget, we're still in a pandemic. These are very intense times. And it reminds me of that passage in Romans 8 of the world crying out and groaning, awaiting that time when God will bring restoration. This is a time that we're in, feeling that groaning, that that desire for things to be different. And Lent This thing that we engage in, this thing that we feel and participate in is greater than just our own engagement personally, or even us as a red church. Actually, the global church is going through this, this passage towards Easter. And Lent awakens us to the reality of what's happening in our world and teaches us to cry out for that hope of Jesus, resurrection and the kingdom to come. And so we enter this journey reflecting grieving, lamenting, but also celebrating, hoping and rejoicing as we follow Jesus towards the cross and celebrate his resurrection and ascension. Part of that process, part of engaging in Lent, there are many practices you can do, but one of them is communion. Or maybe you've heard of it as the Eucharist. Maybe you've never actually heard of communion or participated in it. It's just been a tradition you've seen at school or you've noticed in some forms of art. Today, I want to look at it in a new way. I want to understand it biblically. And so we're going to head straight into the text to do that. We're going to start at the beginning, Genesis 2, and recognize that actually the first command that God gives us is to eat, to come to the table, to come to a meal, just as we do in communion. So let's look at Genesis 2, verses 8 to 9. God's created the world already. He's already filled it with many things and we're joining him as he talks about the Garden of Eden and placing man within it. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jumping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And this is the command. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Eat of this tree. Trees in the garden, the tree of life. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So this invitation This first command that God gives Adam and Eve, humanity, 
is to eat of the tree of life. And this tree of life represents God. It is God. He's formed it with his hands, with his words, with his breath. It represents the gift to all creation. The tree of life for eternal life can be found. It says further on in Genesis 3 that it's a tree that transforms, transforms, that will offer eternal life to whoever eats of it. He invites Adam to participate that, to participate in a meal with God of God. But there's that warning as well, not to eat from the other tree. And if you think about it geographically, he's created the garden and Eden is a part of the garden, but it's in the east. It's only a section of it. And on the top of this hill, there's a tree of life, but also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have to walk past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to get to the tree of life. And what did it say in the verse 8? That they were pleasing to the eye. Both trees looked like they had good food, but God had said, do not eat of that. Eat of the tree of life. And so Adam, humanity, is presented with a choice, life or death. If you read on in Genesis, you know that Adam and Eve sadly choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent tricks them and they choose their own will, their own way, their desire to know more than God or know of God rather than trusting him and eating from the tree of life. As a result, they're banished from the garden, removed from that part of the garden. The east, Eden, is then locked away and Adam and Eve are sent out to till the land outside of it. How will they ever return to this tree of life? They're on a pathway to death. How do they get back to the tree of life? But God is compassionate and gracious, as his word tells us, and he continues to invite humanity back to that source. If you look throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous occasions that God invites us to a meal. He invites the people to a meal. If you move on towards when he released the Israelites from Egypt, when he saved them, what took place on that night? Passover, what were they invited to do? To have a meal. That is what saved them. That is what protected them. And that's what took them out of Egypt. And throughout the Old Testament, you see the Israelites are invited time and again as God's chosen people, the representation of Adam, of humanity, of God's chosen people. Eat with me. Feast with me. Show, let me show you that I am trustworthy, that I am the source of all life. And the Israelites spend years practicing these meals. And it's not just this intellectual thing they do. They literally eat the meals. It's this whole body experience. They're tasting, touching, smelling, singing of the story of who God is. But they still choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Throughout the text, you see that they choose their own way. They choose their own idols. They choose control, believing in that they know better than God. until you get to the prophets. And in the prophets, even then, they speak of God's compassion and love and desire to bring us back into that eternal life. And actually the imagery, if you look at Isaiah 25, is of a meal, a restoring of that sacred place, a new covenant. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and finest of wines. On the mountain, he will swallow up death. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. This is the prophetic promise of a God who says, I will make a way again. It's amazing to look at this thread throughout the biblical narrative, this invitation to a meal, because we also then come to Jesus, to the New Testament, to the Gospels. And Jesus loves a meal. If you read the Gospels, it's actually uncanny the amount of times he's either creating the meal, inviting himself over for a meal, or hosting one. He feeds the 5,000 on a mountainside. He stops Zacchaeus and says, hey, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. What are you cooking? He's at the house of Mary and Martha, but also he prepares and hosts the Passover with his disciples. God, Jesus, they represent this same thread, this opportunity, this meal. But Jesus also does something else profound. Not only does he speak of this, not only does he invite just as God did, to eat once again, to sit around the table. He doesn't just invite people to a meal. He is the meal. This is the new covenant, the change that comes. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Not only does he invite us to the meal, he is the meal, the the bread of life. And his words echo God's. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, eternal life, the tree of life. Jesus is saying, I am the new tree of life. And he invites us not to just sit by it, not to just look upon it, but to eat from it, to eat of him. And to trust just as Adam and Eve, just as humanity will be transformed as we feast on who God is, so too will we as we feast on the life of Jesus. When we come to communion, if you've been in church for a little while, traditionally you look at a passage from one of the Gospels, say Luke 22 which describes the final Passover meal that Jesus engages with his disciples in before he heads to the cross. And he says, as he's sitting around the table with these beloved disciples, breaking bread, pouring the wine, he says in verse 19 of Luke 22, do this in remembrance of me. And traditionally, that's what we've done. In the West, we do it in remembrance of God, of Jesus, But often we just focus on his death. Not always, but often we do. And I think we miss or we we keep it in a really narrow perspective if we just do that. Because also, if you think about it, when Jesus says this, do this in remembrance of me, he hasn't died yet. We're not just remembering his death, but actually his life, what he brought, what he represents, all that he fulfills of the Old Testament. We're remembering that too. I think it's always really helpful to look at the people of God, to go back to those who have had this tradition passed down through generation after generation. Even to this day, when the Jews celebrate Passover, the way they engage with it isn't just this symbolic separate idea of just God's Jesus' death or only held out for those who have um, the elite or those who perform something. There are different interpretations of communion, but actually the Jews come to it 
as it was originally from the Passover, and they engage in it holistically. They don't suppose they're doing anything different from those who sat around the meal in Egypt. They say this, this is the night when God brought us out of Egypt. They're not their distant heirs are talking about. They fully step into this narrative. They engage in this meal just as the wilderness generation did. They place themselves there, even though we're in 2022. Time and space come together in this moment as we sit around the Passover meal. The sacramental world, past and present, converge in these elements, in this meal. So when we take take communion, it's like we're sitting around the table with Jesus, with the disciples. N.T. Wright says when he writes about this, that the Jesus who gives himself to us as food and drink is himself the beginning of God's new world. At communion, we are like the children of Israel in the wilderness, taking fruit plucked from the promised land. It is a future coming to meet us in the present. So not only does communion remember God, Jesus' um, life, all that he brought, God, the tree of life, But it also is as if we take that fruit, the tree of life that Jesus now is, and we pluck it from the future where he is, where all things will be restored because he has risen. We bring that too as we take communion. And again, they converge before us in these elements. The fruit of the tree of life. Jesus himself as that tree offers us that opportunity to choose life and to be transformed by feasting in this meal. I'd love to tell a story. I was watching a uh, prayer course uh, session this week and Alan Emerson was in this session. Alan Emerson is the international, let me get it right, international, Irish international director of 24-7 prayer. Um, And he actually preached for us a couple of summers ago. He's a great guy. Um, But he shared this really powerful story of his experience of God in the midst of grief. And so I'd love to just share it with you. Basically, he talked about the fact that when he first got married, he was so excited to find his soulmate, he said. And he was married for a year and everything was great. And they were looking forward to serving God and had actually prayed that they would be led by the Holy Spirit in their marriage. A year on from being married, his wife started to have headaches. So they got some tests done, and after a month, we're told to get again. To, to, we're told to go and get a scan. The scan confirmed that there was a tumor. And so a week later, his wife was in surgery, brain surgery, to get this removed. It was major surgery, quite traumatic, understandably, but successful in removing the tumor. This was September 2006. But by the end of 2006, she began to have seizures. So they had more surgery. And the surgery then was followed by six weeks of chemo and radiotherapy every day. And sadly, things just got steadily worse. And so on the 22nd of April in 2007, he woke beside his wife and watched as she took her last breaths and died. 
he said he didn't know what he was going to do. He actually didn't know how he was going to make it through. There was a torrent of grief that took him and held him. And he talks about nights being the worst time, that he would lie in his bed crying so many tears. He talks about the fact that we've probably all experienced this where your tears, there's so many of them, they collect in your ears as you lie there. And that these groans and noises escaped his body because he was in such deep, deep sorrow and aching, a groaning, and just not understanding what had happened, this grief, this loss. And he says sometimes he wouldn't even realise it, but his dad would come into his room and sit on the end of the bed and weep with him. In the dark, there was another presence. And he says the ministry of presence is greater than the ministry of words. His dad sat there. And in this process, he became deeply aware of God's presence with him, represented by his father in that way. In those dark nights, there was a presence who sat with him. And his father, he didn't say anything except on one occasion. One night, he knelt over Alan's bed. And he said, son, if I could take this from you, if I could carry this in my body, I would. I want you to know that I would do that for you. That is the heart of God. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. In this moment, Alan knew that his father couldn't do that. But Jesus could and Jesus has he has taken it into his own body. He has carried it. Perhaps you can resonate with this story. You've sat in grief, loss, disappointment, and would have taken given anything to get rid of it or to have someone carry it for you. Jesus did. He does. This is the grief we feel, the pain, the unknown, the confusion, the disappointment of looking on at the Ukraine, of the things happening there, this deep sorrow. We cry out to Jesus, take it, please solve it, fix it, hold it. Alan said something else really powerful. He said, it's not that we won't go through pain, but we have one who goes through with us. Jesus remains with us. He didn't change Alan's life in that moment. He didn't give him answers. He didn't give him gifts, but what he gave was himself. He offered that to Alan and he does time and again, and he offers it to you. As he said in John 6, Jesus said, this bread 
is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, for your life, for my life, for the people around us in this moment, for the people we can't see, for the people in our nation, and for the people that are grieving in the Ukraine and in Russia and every part of the world that is experiencing that groaning grief, loss, and disappointment with what is happening. Jesus gives of himself. It's almost as if when we think about Easter, when we go on that journey, that Jesus returns to Eden as the new humanity. He returns to Eden. He goes to the garden and he walks past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says, not my will, but your will be done. These words are echoed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus chooses God's will, God's way. He trusts God. And as Jesus walks past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he heads towards the tree of life and eats of that before God. But what happens? He dies. But we know that actually it's not really death or death doesn't have the final say. It's actually a transformation, a sense in which a seed is then planted and what grows? The tree of life, a new tree of life that has conquered death. That is what we celebrate at Easter. It's a passage through. Death is not an end. It's a passage through. And Jesus represents that. In the Catholic tradition, it's called the Paschal Mystery. This idea of a passage as we move from life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And during this time, during Lent, you and I, we will travel through this passage as well. As Alan said, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't just give us answers or take away the pain or give us gifts in this time. He may, but what he gives is himself. He is with us in this. As we go through this passage time and time again, we will as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as the church. And as we feel that weight, that grief, that passage into death, as we witness death and horror in the Ukraine, the world in turmoil groaning, the grief and loss we may hold individually as well. Jesus is offering himself to us. So I want you to pick up in this moment the bread and the wine and hold the elements before you. This converging of past and present you hold in your hands. Jesus is present with us. No, he is literally present with us, right? He's risen from the dead. Holy Spirit, may you awaken us right now to Jesus' presence. He sits with us. And as we partake in this passage, as we walk through it, just as he did, as we take in the bread and the wine, we are one in one way dislocated, separated, and we feel the weight of that grief and loss. That's the separation from eternal life. But also at the same time, we are grafted in. We are brought before God and we joyfully rise in hope of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you partake in this meal, you are grafted into that beautiful tree of life. 
Jesus is the vine and we are the branches that come from that. You remain in him and taking communion is doing that. That transformation that God spoke about in the Garden of Eden that is repeated throughout scripture happens when we take communion just within us. That physical act of receiving, eating, digesting. We are being remembered into the body of Christ. And so not only is this true for your story or my story, but as we do this, this unites us as a church. We share that collective grief, but we also sit in the hope of Jesus coming back. We're woven together as we commune on Jesus, the tree of life, as we reform the body of Christ. And hasn't it been a while since we've been able to do this? What a sacred moment to start Lent by taking communion, remembering that this unites us as the body of Christ as red, but also the body of Christ in Australia and a body of Christ across the world. And so we walk this passage together, this pathway. By the Holy Spirit, he unites us. Normal separation. And so as we take these elements, let's remember that we are united as a church, as red. But also let's remember that we are united with all the Christians and all those followers of Jesus in the Ukraine who are in deep grief. And let's take this in hope and love and declaration for them. As we do, as we take the wine and bread, which we will in a moment, there's a quiet restoring that takes place within us. An unquenchable hope. Everlasting life. Let's read this prayer together and take communion. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.